Welcome to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Alyssa stahlsberg Canelli. I am the Assistant Dean of Academic Affairs here in the Graduate School. And today I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Megan Finch, a PhD candidate in the English program. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me. Um, so first I wanted to talk a little bit about your writing process here in the middle of writing your dissertation. So first thing, can you give us your elevator pitch for your dissertation? My dissertation focuses on representations of mad black women in the kind of post-1970s moment. So after the ebb of both the civil rights movement and the black power movement. Um, and it, it focuses on representations of madness in these texts. Particularly, my focus is on authors like Tony Cade Bambara, Toni Morrison, and others. Great. So before we get into the really interesting content of your dissertation, I wanted to talk to you about your writing process and how you actually came to this topic. Um, was this a topic or a question or an area you came into graduate school very determined to research and to write on, or did it develop over time? So, you know, as an African-American woman, I grew up loving literature, but I really I always, and this is a very problematic thing for me to say about um, my love of literature, but I always thought that the literature by white men in particular was the, kind of the most important, that it was a literature that highlighted the universal subject. My favorite book growing up, or favorite books growing up, were things like 1984 and Heart of Darkness. And even through my college years, I kind of continued having this sense of things. And as I read more literature by women and by African Americans, I began to gain an appreciation of them, but I always kind of thought that they missed the kind of universal questions, that the questions always kind of came down to the sociological problems of being either female or being African American. And when I came to graduate school, I had, I remember writing in my personal statement that, you know, I finally come to the appreciation that black people and, and and women have interesting things to say, but that is not my interest. And I think throughout my first few years in graduate school, there was a lot of um, me fighting against what was be a growing interest in African-American literature and literature by African-American women in particular. And I remember this question comes up a lot in graduate school, what are you studying, what's your focus on? And I remember kind of constantly being at odds with my own body being that of a black woman and kind of saying that this is what I'm studying. And so it took me longer than it should have uh, to really come to my focus, uh, come to kind of focusing on African-American women um, and writing about madness because I was just, like there's always that question of, are you just writing narcissistically about yourself? Um, I've come to realize, or I've come to understand that I think that this is one of the most vibrant fields and one of the most important fields, I think, in terms of uh, black studies uh, generally, and particularly thinking about issues of gender and issues of the construction of irrationality and rationality within that. Well, thank you for that really reflective response. And it, it occurs to me that there are some really interesting things to follow up on that. Because one, um, I don't know if you've heard about the phrase that dissertation research is always me-search. Um, so it's definitely something that I think, you know, it's understood broadly speaking that, you know, we we end up gravitating towards topics and researches and, and things that, that, that we're personally invested in. Uh, but I think also it's that you're, you're describing this double bind, I think, when you have an identity that is linked to your content or your topic. Um, and that is also contrasted with this sort of fallacy of the disinterested scholar, the, the observer, the person who chronicles or analyzes, that is somehow a little bit removed from that which we are studying. Um, so I think that's a very common dilemma that I think 
many people face. Um, and I think, and thank you for highlighting that, because I think it's something that we tend to not talk about in terms of when we develop our scholarly questions and research interests. Um, and the other thing I would like to follow up on that, that whole process for you is that, you know, more broadly speaking, you know, I think that is also a fallacy of grad school, right? That you, you enter in with your research question or your areas, but that's part of the discovery process. And you're supposed to be changed by what you're reading and what you're studying. And you're supposed to, that's the nature of the inquiry. Um, so along that topic, so what has been the most surprising tangent or insight or, or thing that you've discovered in your content thus far? I tend to be and have always been a really kind of broad theoretical reader and I've always been particularly interested in the Enlightenment. And so one of the things that this interest in the Enlightenment, which comes up whatever I'm teaching or thinking about, um, for some reason I'm always like, let's talk about John Locke. Um, and so one of the things that I found most interesting in kind of going back to some of that and and seeing, you know, what, as we're thinking about the development of madness, if we start perhaps with Foucault's work or something like that, and then the way he talks about the Enlightenment. So going back to some of the Enlightenment thinkers and thinking about the kind of interesting and fairly consistent coincidence between uh, descriptions of madness, uh, unreason, madness, and idiocy, and blackness. So when we look at, for instance, John Locke's work, he is one of the thinkers who kind of understood slavery as an impossibility because basically only in a just war situation where one has forfeited their life could one be enslaved and if one chooses to no longer be enslaved then one kind of forfeits their life at that point. And so within his thinking every you know people are their freedom is kind of the central idea there and only under two circumstances can one be unfree uh, as a child when one isn't doesn't have reason enough and if one is mad. So we have this kind of framework with Locke's thinking, but we also know that he, in his involvement with the Constitution of the Carolinas, that he writes that you know all Negro slaves must obey their masters, and or all kind of white men. I think I don't have the exact wording here, but so how does how are these two thoughts consistent in his work? And so one thing that I noticed initially was just how you know, only the category of madness or the category of idiocy really allows for him to, um, or allows for us to see his work as being consistent between these two. What has been most surprising to me is thinking about how thinkers who, all of whom have been uh, instrumental in the construction of anti-blackness in terms of their you know, discussion of kind of the irrationality of, of slaves and of black people generally, and the coincident and the kind of way that that works within their thought or has this connection to uh, madness within within their kind of general understanding. So I'm trying to, what's been most surprising to me and most interesting to me is to kind of continue to trace this connection, mm -hmm. even when obviously they're never explicitly um, doing both uh, or thinking both of them in the same way, or not usually anyways. Yeah, and it occurs to me also that I think one of the exciting things about your project um, and I have a, a lot of um, sympathy for this. This huge task is is how do you anchor your project in literary texts with literary signification, um, and really do the work of of what we do as literary scholars, but also connect it to a larger political, philosophical, historical um, set of texts and and discourses. Um, and so you're really moving, you know, across disciplines and and through time in your dissertation, which I think is incredibly impressive, but also incredibly difficult to manage. But to go back to the, theor the kind of bridging the theoretical and the literary, you know, I, one of the authors you're working with is Toni Morrison, and she's one of the writers, I think, that is deceptively theoretical, 
Yeah. Like her, her novels are brilliant in so many literary ways, but she actually has a very specific theoretical perspective she takes on things. So uh, I'm curious if that's indicative of most of the writers you're working with. Um, how fruitful has that been for you to, to bridge the theoretical and the literary texts and what you think about that? Yeah, so that's a really good question and a really good kind of point to make about Morrison and in general kind of the way that black feminism has understood its theoretical practice as being more in terms, not always in the kind of literary treatise or theoretical treatise, Mm -hmm. that storytelling has been always an important part of that. And as a result, uh, my dissertation itself is really kind of trying to um, think about how black feminist writers have kind of theorized madness as a kind of way of being that is separate from the kind of rational uh, enlightenment subject. So if explicitly theoretical black feminists like uh, Sylvia Winter have thought about man uh, with a capital M and uh, kind of theorized this position as not one necessarily that we should be looking to emulate ultimately, um, that black feminist writers in their literary texts have done that and have really Im- have really kind of thought through what other possibilities there are. But of course I've had to do that within the context of imagining that subjectivity is always imagining it within a kind of world that's bent on your kind of destruction. And as I think about, I'm writing about Beloved right now, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in kind of the way that that text is both, I think, interested in how a community can distribute, har- can redistribute harm mm-hmm. um, in a way that doesn't mean utopia, right? Mm-hmm. The idea, uh, I particularly for those who might know the text, you know, as there's the moment where Stamp Paid fishes out um, Setha from the river and asks the, a little boy to who's with him to give uh, the baby Denver his coat, and he says, well, what am I going to wear? And he says, if you want to take that coat off that baby, then you do that, but then you go somewhere else and don't come back. And so there's this sense that this little boy is giving up his coat and he's going to be cold, right? He's, there's not enough to go around in this community such that, you know, I can give up my coat and still have enough, right? When we think about charity, we oftentimes think about it that way where you give what you can. Whereas what this community is, you know, thinking or what the community in Beloved is kind of predicated on is this idea of that giving is a painful, can be a painful and a depriving experience. And yet, like the community has to form in such a way that it distributes harm enough so that this baby can live and you can be cold. Um, So there's no utopia there, but certainly it's a possibility of kind of distributing harm enough that uh, the community can survive. You know, as you're talking, um, it it occurs to me there's a lot of um, resonance in terms of trauma studies and sort of the scholarship that has been done sort of in a psychoanalytic tradition around collective trauma and experiences of trauma. And a lot of those scholarship come out of Holocaust studies, um, but I, I can. Um, there are certain sort of um, works that I'm thinking of that that talk about um, the way in which a community designates a person to carry that trauma, and that person becomes mad. Although their reaction, exactly what you're saying, is not mad or irrational. In fact, it's actually quite a rational response right. to the harm and trauma of a large historical traumatic event. Yeah. Um, and so I, it's interesting because I think that's the other part. I think that you're working through. Or some of the subjects I hear you talking about is sort of, you know, to be to be black, to be African American, to be embodied in a particular way is in itself can be has a traumatic history and how that is carried through and how that's transmitted through generations and, and through reproductive structures and through and, but how do we survive with it right. and continue through it. Right. And I'm I'm really interested in so I think 
probably, unless things change, my fourth chapter is going to be about trauma. And what I'm trying to work through in terms of trauma is, going back again to my just interest in the Enlightenment, is the way that trauma to me seems predicated on the notion that harm has should only be in relationship to one's transgression. We all know that that's actually not the case in reality, but we but that's what causes a traumatic response. It's not that the thing nothing it's in and of itself is traumatic, but it's because we have an expectation that we will be safe from violence. And so one of the things that Black Studies has been interested in lately, and I think particularly um, my interest in kind of Afro-pessimism has been um, in this idea of blackness, black violence against black bodies as being um, not based on transgression. Uh, so basically that violence against black bodies is imminent and that has a kind of, there's like a different structure that we're thinking about there in terms of the subjectivity, or maybe subjectivity is not the right word there, but um, that we have a kind of different uh, being, like ontological being, um, because of the imminent violence, which is separate from this kind of, the idea of the the formation of states as something that we give up certain rights and then we get in exchange this safety and that black people have never been, uh, never that's never been afforded to them. And so what does trauma mean if trauma is predicated on not just the event itself, but the fact that we assume so that it shouldn't happen to you. Yeah, right? you're exactly. unprepared for the event. So that exactly. It takes you unaware. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so if black people have never had right. that kind of, that sense of security within um, within society, I'm, cur- I'm trying to think through what that mm-hmm. means in terms of thinking about trauma and thinking about, and the fact that I think that doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the, my, the thinkers that I am engaging with are thinking. Um, so I'm trying, but I'm trying to think through where this um you know where this happens and how this comes up, and so I'm just I'm really trying to work through the idea of trauma, and I don't know where it's mm-hmm. going to go quite yet, but I think it's an interesting question. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and thank you for taking part um, in this dialogue with me. Um, and I think it's um, one of the things I want to highlight about this conversation is the way in which I think um, it, you know you started by talking about how you really pushed away particular aspects of your identity or didn't want to have it associated with your scholarly trajectory. But the way in which it's all come together in a really authentic and a very um, theoretically and textually interesting way in a way that that feels incredibly exciting as, as new scholarship and contributing to sets of conversations that are really cutting edge and contemporary and part of, and has incredible significant contemporary relevance. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I think a lot of us, even if we're working on very historical or very kind of removed in time, that we're, we're looking for, you know, a sense that our work does matter in the world. And I think that that's, you know, you have so much to add to this conversation and, and your, your thinking process and, and how you're engaging is, I'm really excited to see where this goes. Well, thank you so much, Megan, for taking the time to of have course. this conversation. And we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to really kind of think through things that I might not have in such a close manner otherwise.